0: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 11.
1: While well, we're reviewing the epistle to the Hebrews. Quite an epistle, of course. Uh, a shattering thing to many people to really realize that the Levitical system, the Levitical priesthood, the law... Is behind us. It's been totally replaced, eclipsed, um, annulled, put away, uh, in, in exchange for the new covenant and a new priesthood. And uh, it's re- very disturbing to many Christians to fully, really appropriate this issue. This issue is hammered away in three epistles by Paul: Epistle of the Romans, of course; Galatians, indeed, and of course the Epistle of the Hebrews and uh so and we're not taking except we 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 we're not going to make a big thing of Paul's authorship some people question that but the more you study the epistle to me the evidence is compelling but the net of it is is that the logic the the integrity the message of the epistle of hebrews stands independent of the authorship because it really is built entirely from the old testament and uh Uh, It built from that foundation, which his readers took seriously anyway, because it was written to the Jewish mind, the Jewish Christians. But it has lessons for every one of us, and many of us that are Gentiles, that are Christians, uh, gain a whole uh, essential background from this epistle. Well, we've been through a lot of the doctrinal parts. We've been, we've hit that pretty hard in the previous chapters, but now we're in Chapter 11 one of the most delightful, one of the most uh, well-known chapters of the epistle. Now, you know, the first seven chapters were all about Jesus and that he was the new and better deliverer. Better than angels, better than Moses and Joshua and Aaron and so forth. A priest after the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. And we went through all of that in the first seven chapters. And he had the benefit, or we have the benefit, his benefit really, of the better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. And that hammered away through from chapters 7 through 10, where we were last time. And uh, last time we got into the fourth of five warnings. Tonight we shift from that to a chapter that in many ways stands on its own as, a, as one of the favorites by many people called the, the, the Hall of Faith. Charles Spurgeon made an interesting, he says, It is not thy hold on Christ that saves us. It is Christ. Wow. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ that saves thee, though that be his instrument. It's Christ's blood and merit. I mention that to sort of start another flavor. You know, you see a lot of secular, um, well-intended inspirational films and stuff which you just got to have faith. Just got to have, and when you see people say that, it demonstrates they have no idea what they're talking about. Because you're going to have faith in something that ain't working. The faith, the the issue is not the faith. You know, many people sort of get enthusiastic and say, well, you got to have faith. No, you got to have faith in the right things, you know. And so we're going to talk about that as we go through here. Dr. uh, Sanders said, Oswald Sanders said, Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. Okay, that's getting warmer. So let's just jump in and see what the thing says and see if we can understand what it says. You know, there's a great difference in our institute. We have two legs, or three legs, but two that are very different. We have the Berean leg, which is the study of the Word of God. And we have the Issachar leg, which is the understanding the times. The Berean leg is the Bible study part of it, and the Iskar is the intelligence, strategic trends, and stewardship kind of things. They are opposites, actually, in, in terms of tools. Because when you study the Berean leg, you're, you're studying something you know is true, our challenges to understand it, to apprehend it. The second leg is just the opposite you're dealing with worldly data, intelligence briefs, uh, they're subject to bias. Hidden agendas. Your challenge there is just the opposite. Apologetics is appropriate to the first leg, which is the defending your faith. It's like an attorney before a jury. It's deductive reasoning. The other leg is the is epistemology is just the opposite. Epistemology being the study of knowledge, its scope, and its limits. Just the opposite. It's, it's inductive. The first is the tool of a trial lawyer. The second one is the the tool of the detective trying to determine what really happened. It begs the question, what is truth? Well, here we are. We're in the Word of God. And here our challenge now is to really understand what it's saying. So let's just jump right in in first verse. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for. The Greek term there in the original is hopostasis. And that, is in, in, uh, that uh, uh, will be coming up again in chapter 1 verse 3 it came up. It's an exact reproduction. It is assurance in several other places. That's what the word means. The meaning is substance that gives real existence. It's analogous to something in a document, a legal document. In the ancient documents, that term was used as evidence like entitled deeds. It gives a guarantee of ownership or what have you. It refers to the real essence, the real essence, the real content. It's the essence of the future reality. As a scientific term, hopostasis is the opposite of hypothesis. Hypothesis is something you're suggesting is possibly true. Homostasis is something you know is true. See, they're opposites. Okay? The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Well, what does that mean? Elechos, which is a legal term meaning evidence that's accepted for conviction. In other words, not only evidence, it's convincing evidence, if you will. It's in effect a commitment to certainty. And as a noun, it only appears here and in in Paul's second letter to Timothy. The person of faith lives out his belief in what his mind and spirit are convinced is true. The entire business world, by the way, rests on faith. Every time you accept a check, you're accepting the good faith and credit on that check. Every time you use a credit card, the merchant is takes faith that that's going to be made good. See, the whole world, economic world of transactions depends on full faith and credit. And uh, so so faith is not something distinctive theological, but that's obviously the the thing we have here. See, this hope we talk about is not a wish or a dream or a fantasy. It's reality. And uh, faith is the substance for the scientific mind. It's the evidence for the legal mind. Take either posture you want. And all of these things we're talking about here, of course, are still future and unseen. That doesn't make them unreal. That doesn't make them uncertain. That's what the faith deals with. It Hope or faith has to have a foundation, and that foundation is Scripture. you got to have faith. No, you got faith in the Word of God. Different deal altogether. Now, even if you have faith in the Word of God, then that will be accompanied by patient, waiting until it comes to pass. So faith in the Word of God is concomitant to enduring, hanging in there. That's really the point of the author. The author is going to select a whole bunch of examples, and some of the examples are kind of surprising. We need to understand he's not just giving a chronology of a lot of great faithful people. No, he's making another point, and we're going to watch for what that point is as we go. But in this first verse, the first the teaching here is that faith gives substance to things that are hoped for and it demonstrates a provable reality to things unseen. We'll talk about some of these. Faith gives assurance that the other world, the unseen world, really does exist. You and I, whether we realize it or not, are hanging our entire eternity on the existence of a world we haven't seen. You need to realize that. We want to understand that better. The life of the believer today is lived in the assurance of another reality. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. That's a reality outside our immediate experience. And although these things are unseen, the person of faith is convinced of the reality of them, obviously. And the second verse says, and by it, by what? By that faith, the elders... The, pre- the ones that have gone before, obtained a good report. So this forthcoming list we're going to be exploring that makes up this chapter is intended to motivate equivalent behavior. There are many experiences that people have had in the past that we may applaud that we don't really think are going to happen to us. We're not necessarily assuming we're going to be in their shoes. But the list that we're going to examine is going to point to behavior that we are expected to emulate, to 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 uh, follow. Now, these elders we're going to talk about are Old Testament, obviously, saints, and since they exercise faith, to depart from faith is to depart from Old Testament saints. These Old Testament saints won the battle through patient endurance. That's the key, the key the, probably the two key words of this chapter. Patient endurance. These believers must win the battle the same way. In other words, the writer here, Paul, I believe, is saying he's going to point to these Old Testament saints that won the battle. You guys, you listeners, are going to need to win the battle the same way. You need to learn how they did it. That's how we're going to do it. And uh, the key verse, if you want to just pick a key verse, is a verse that is back from chapter 6, verse 12 that you be not sluggish but imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises well you can't earn your salvation absolutely not your salvation is done 100% by Jesus Christ if you're saved it's because you accepted Christ he did the whole thing your passport is stamped you are on your way to heaven great that's first base that doesn't mean you inherit what do you want to inherit promises Boy, there are some fabulous promises that you can forfeit if you're not faithful. That's the whole thrust here. And that's the thrust of Nan's book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. is the idea that there's an inheritance that you will forfeit if you're not diligent. Let's find out what that means. So that's what she deals with in her book. So let's go ahead here. Now we're down to verse 3, one of my favorite verses. Through faith we understand... That the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That sounds like a little bit of double talk, doesn't it? Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. Now the word of God in the original is the word Rima. When I go down to Australia, New Zealand, Radio Rima is one of the major networks. Why do they call it Radio Rema? It's the word. Because the word rima in the Greek doesn't just mean the word of God. It means the spoken word. It fascinates me to notice. And remember back in uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 17. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Holy Spirit seven times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. He that hath an ear let him hear what the Spirit God says. The, I remember as even as a teenager, I came across an essay in one of the quarterlies, whatever, that the, the, the writer took the position that the ear is the portal God uses. All through the scripture, God said, hear what he says. He that hath an ear, etc., etc., etc. The writer made the point that the eye is Satan's portal. Eve saw the fruit that was desired to be make one wise, you know. It's through the eye that... Satan tends it. That's that leads to lust and all these things. Interesting, and I'm not I'm not here to you know to, to endorse the particular thesis of the author, but it is a provocative perspective that God seems to use the word, the spoken word, as his instrument in some surprising ways. The word, rima. so the worlds were framed by what the spoken word of God. Okay, it's interesting. That an ancient sage by the name of Nachmanides, he wrote in the 13th century, Jewish genius, he noted that in Genesis chapter 1, the creation chapter of the Bible, God said, and God said occurs 10 times. And maybe from that and some other things, he came to some interesting conclusions. But God said, God, sp- all that in Genesis 1, the creation. Of everything you can think of. It's all listed there in the six days, right? And God said, and God said, and God said. Ten times he says that. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That's one of those phrases that you first think just sound like a little bit of double talk, you know. Let's find out what does that really mean. Let's talk a little bit about the dimensions of our reality. We're sitting here in chairs, I've got a podium up here, we're in a room, right? That's our immediate reality. Nachmanides, back in 1232, concluded from studying Genesis chapter 1 and God said 10 times, he concluded that the universe has 10 dimensions and only 4 are knowable. If you read his commentary on Genesis, published in 1263, that was one of his conclusions from the Hebrew text. Okay, that's kind of interesting. We live in the 21st century, right? We've spent millions of dollars on atomic accelerators to try to understand our reality. And what do our scientists tell us today? What's the current thinking? The particle physicists, the quantum physicists in the 20th, 21st century say we live in 10 dimensions. Really? That's kind of interesting. In fact, they'll point out that only four of those ten are directly discernible. There are three spatial dimensions: length, width, and height. Three space we all know three dimensions. Einstein's great insight back at the turn of the previous century was that led to his general theory of relativity, is that time is a physical property. We live in four dimensions, not three. Three spatial dimensions and time. A physicist today will not speak of space and time separately. He'll always speak of space-time. And four of these ten are directly discernible. Six, they would say, are curled using uh, vector terms. They're curled in less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, and therefore that's less than the wavelength of light. So you can only infer the other six indirectly. It takes some elaborate scientific uh, things to get at them. But the point is that current thinking is there's 10 dimensions. Four are directly discernible. Six are more elusive, but nevertheless real, legitimate dimensions. I think that's interesting that our science has finally caught up to where Nocmonides was back in the 13th century by studying what? Not particle accelerators, studying the Word of God. You say, well, there's four dimensions. Isn't that interesting? Is that, we is thank Einstein for that. Einstein should have read Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It might have given him a clue. Because Paul speaks in verse 18 of chapter 3 of Ephesians of the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height. Whoops. How many are there? Four. Okay. Breath, platos, makos for length, bathos for depth, and hupsos for height. But the first one actually means breadth and can mean breadth-like extent. It can infer time. So, am I saying that Paul knew was 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 of our hyperspaces and that three were spatial and one was? No, not necessarily. The Holy Spirit certainly did, and that may have guided his, his his flow of thought here. But breath, length, depth, and height. And the first word, the platos, can mean uh, It can be a, a Greek expression for time. So you got length, depth, and height. Three three spatial dimensions and height. Kind of interesting. We're not. Where's she getting started here? Just getting started here, okay? Verse 3 again, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Let's explore that one a little bit. When we were all in school, most of us, I think, got exposed to a model of the atom. There several different models, but the most commonly known one visualizes a nucleus and one or more electrons spinning around that nucleus. The simplest example to talk about is hydrogen. The nucleus consists of one proton and an electron spinning around it. No problem so far, right? You realize that's in one plane, it's actually a three-dimensional thing, but that's okay, we'll get there. Now, this of course is not to scale, but we have a nucleus and an electron, fair enough. If we're going to make this to scale, there may be some usefulness to try to get a feeling for this. Well, the nucleus is about 10 to the minus 13 centimeters. in point, point zero, 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 13 zeros and a one is the smallness of the nucleus. It's itty-bitty, OK? All right. Now the electron spinning around it is in the neighborhood of 10 to the minus eight. There should have been eight. I didn't count them, but there should have been eight zeros and a one, right? So you have the way you summarize these numbers. They're called orders of magnitude. If you're going to deal with very small or very large things, you typically just use powers of ten. Okay, ten to the minus thirteen is very very small. Ten to the minus eight is not quite that small. You with me? Okay. It may be useful for us to get a feeling for the difference. If the linear ratio between the two is 10 to the minus 8 divided by 10 to the minus 13, or putting it another way, that's, uh, it's 10 to the, uh, there's a 10 to the fifth difference between them. 100,000 difference. You, now you and I generally don't run into 100,000 differences. Let's try to make an example of that. Let's make a model of this electron and let's use a golf ball to represent the nucleus. Are with me so far? Well, let's. we want to make something represent the electron spinning around this nucleus. How far away? Well, it would have to, if, if the golf ball, let's call it two inches. A little less than that, I guess, but let's call it two inches. Um, the electron, then, would be how far away? Well, um, it turns out the electron would be about... Uh, if, uh, if, if I have uh, one, it, it, it turns out to be about 55 football fields away. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's right. That's that's a long, is it, call it a mile. Call it a mile. Okay. So, football field, I'm using it like a meter, but call it like a yard. Okay. We're, it's about 5,500 uh, 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 yards. That's a long way. Okay. Call it a mile in wrong terms. But that's just the linear. That's 10 to the fifth. But if I want to make it volumetric, I need the length, width, and height, right? So what I really need to do is cube whatever that is. Well, if I cube 10 to the 5th, that turns out to be 10 to the 15th. Now, the 10 to the 15th is a number so big that most of us can't relate to that. In fact, I was in a discussion with Dr. Edward Teller and his sidekick, Norris Keeler. We were on a board together, and they were talking about 10 to the 15th. And I said, boy, that's more than one second is to 30 million years. And they looked at me shocked. They use these numbers all the time at Livermore. They're atomic scientists, you know. And even they didn't really relate to the reality of a number that big, okay? Because 10 to the 15th is the same ratio roughly as one second would be to 30 million years. Do the math. Do the math, figure it out. Do it on a piece of paper, work it out. It's a, it, it, in, in, in rough size. Now, why am I get? Why am I getting into this? Because if I'm saying that this podium is solid, and Tracy comes up to me and challenges me and says, "There's nothing there," she is more right than I am by a ratio of 30 million years to one second. Follow me? In other words, 10 to the 15th seconds to one second. There's. It's more true to say there's nothing here than to argue that this is solid. You see why? Now you say, well, that's kind of crazy because I can feel it here. No. What you're feeling is a collision between the atoms in my hand and, or should, correction, the molecules. See, we've just taken a simple atom here. If you take several atoms and put them together, you get a molecule. And there's all different kinds of molecules. And my my body is made up of molecules. This podium is made up of molecules. And when I put my hand here, the electrical fields of my molecules are colliding, so to speak, with the electrical fields of the molecules here. So I sense the illusion that it's solid. And it is solid in the sense that I can't penetrate it because I can't, you know, relieve those electrical fields. But the point is that this reality that we are used to experiencing is an electrical simulation. That wall over there is not solid. It is more empty than solid by some incredible ratio, follow me? Now if I try to walk through that wall, I'm going to be very embarrassed, okay? (laughs) because my molecules won't, it will interact with those molecules and I'll be very embarrassed. Okay. But, for us to understand this, we've made a step toward trying to grasp our reality. There are neutrons that are not, not positively or negatively charged passing through us continually. And fortunately, they don't do any serious damage. But there are cosmic rays that impact the earth. That may be one of the secrets to aging, by the way. There's all kinds of hypotheses. But let's move on to something else here. One of the other discoveries of 20th century science is that the universe is made up of indivisible units. They call them quanta, and the study of this area is called quantum physics.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org.